as we continue along in our series as we're back into the Gospel of John, we're looking at these conversations with Christ and never before as this whole month of February we've devoted to reading the Gospel of John and I pray that you have or many of you have been doing it. If you got up this morning, you read John chapter 12 and if you realized it, the first 11 chapters are often called the book of signs because by the time you get to chapter 11, You've had the seven signs of God, ending with that raising of Lazarus from the dead. Once you hit chapter 12, now you're into the the book of basically his passion, the second part of it. But there's another way to look at it, and I think it's important as I try to set up this of John 17. If you were to read Matthew, or sorry, the book of John, you started in John chapter 1, the first 18 verses are an introduction probably the greatest set of 18 verses you could ever want in regards to the incarnation of God. But then in chapter, chapter 1, verse 19, all the way to the end of chapter 2, including that first sign where Jesus turns water into wine at that wedding at Cana, you come to the end of chapter 2, and it says everybody is pretty hyped up about Jesus, and a lot of people are enthused, and yet John wants us to know something, that Jesus knows what's in our hearts. So even as we begin this morning, both here in this room and for all of you tuned in online, I want you to know this big truth. Jesus knows what's in your heart. You're not hiding from him right now. You're not pretending. He knows everything. And in fact, John wants us to realize that one of the reasons Jesus wouldn't allow himself to be taken and and adored by these people and kind of made a political savior, so to speak, is because he knew what was in their hearts. And I would submit that beginning in chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and then as you go to the woman at the well, and you get to the, the guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years, and on and on and on it goes, what John is doing is unpacking for us how Jesus does know what's in the heart of men and women, groups of people. All the way through as we come to chapter 13, which is the final farewell address of Jesus with his disciples. And we know in chapter 13 that uh, Judas goes out to betray him, and then he finishes it off in 14, 15, and 16. They leave that upper room. Most commentators believe that they're on their way to the Mount of Olives, and somewhere going through the Kedron Valley, as the backdrop of the temple is there in the eastern gate... Jesus stops them all, the 11, with himself, and he prays. And he prays for himself, he prays for the disciples, and he prays for us, the church. I submitted a couple weeks ago that I felt John 17 was the greatest prayer ever prayed. And I'm going to get to that at the end of this sermon. Today I want us to consider that John 17 contains the greatest prayer requests ever prayed. And this is something I want us to hang on to as a group of people. But before we even do that, let me make this real personal and practical. And maybe inside yourselves for just a moment, knowing that God knows your heart... Let me ask you this and myself this. What's your view of prayer? And I mean it. What do you honestly think prayer is? What does it do? Why do we do it? How would you know if you did it right? 
Let me ask you this. When do you pray? How often do you pray? How long do you pray? When are you most likely to pray? Is prayer something that's a regular part of your life? If so, why? I have to be honest, and one of the things that happens even in 2023 as a pastor, if you knew how many off times I get emails, phone calls, text messages, Facebook messenger uh, messages asking, hey, pastor, say a little prayer for me. Or would you remember this? Would you remember to say this? Pray for my mom, pray for my aunt, my uncle, my friend, whatever it may. But have you ever really stopped and asked yourself, what is prayer? And why do we do it? Now, it's not like our Bible doesn't talk about prayer, right? David just read us an entire chapter of Jesus praying. And whether it's from Adam in the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 through 3 all the way to Revelation in chapter 7 and 14 where we see the saints praying and how the prayers are an aroma of incense offered up before the throne room of God, we see all kinds of men and women feeling that they are both heard and not heard. This is the tension when you read your Bible. This is the tension of every one of you. If I could ask all of you, what's your view of prayer? There are times that any of you, if you were being honest, would say, oh, God heard my prayer, or I don't know if God heard my prayer. And you're not alone. Do you realize that that period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament is literally called the 400 silent years of God. But are they? David and the other psalm writers of those 150 chapters right smack dab in the middle of our Bible seem to rejoice that God hears their prayers, and yet they seem to also lament that God doesn't hear their prayers. And sometimes, if you're being honest, you're like, well, which is it? Does God hear or doesn't he hear? Yes, as we come again to John 17, and here we are, and if we are honest... I think many of you in this room, many of you tuning in online would say, I love prayer. But I also think many of you would admit that you're confused or scared. Maybe you're even weary of it. I know I have doubted many times. And I doubt many of us could feel like we are competent enough to actually teach on prayer or explain it. And I want you to know you are not alone. You are not weird. You haven't missed some secret meeting of Christians. Friends, what do you think we have when we call that thing the Lord's Prayer? Why do you think we have it? But I would say to you, as I said two weeks ago, the Lord's Prayer of Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 to 9 should actually be called a model of prayer. It is Jesus' teaching, which of course is found in Matthew when Jesus pronounced it in his Sermon on the Mount. But it's actually Dr. Luke who gives us the background and a wonderful illustration of how we are to pray and why we are to pray. So before I even get into John 17, take your Bibles and go to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, if you have a Bible, I want you to go there. 
Because I think too often, even in our church and in the Christian church of 2023, in the modern church, especially of Canada and the United States, we take a whole bunch of Christianity for granted. We assume we know what we're talking about. We assume we know what we mean. But so few of us are actually reading the Bible and actually letting the Bible speak to us. If you sat there this morning and you listened to David read John 17, quite frankly, your minds and your hearts should just be pounding. You should have a list of questions, of amazements, of worship, of all kinds by what you read and heard read to you in John 17. But in Luke chapter 11, Dr. Luke wants us to know, and he wants Theophilus to know, that the disciples themselves struggled with prayer. Look at what it says. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, notice what he says, as John taught his disciples. So I want you to realize, prayer has been something that's been taught for years, it is not an abnormal thing for you and I to go, I wish someone could talk to me or teach me or help me to understand how to pray. Now, notice what he says. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, stop there and stare at those words. And ask yourself, when was the last time we even did those two sentences? Jesus says, I want you to also pray this, and lead us not into temptation. And then he gives them an illustration of why he taught them to pray this way. Because this almost seems too good to be true. It's so simple. What, I'm supposed to worship God, I'm supposed to want what God wants, I'm supposed to ask God to supply my needs, I'm supposed to ask God for forgiveness, and that forgiveness will motivate me to forgive others, and then I'm asking God to protect me from sin and from temptation. Well, that's all well and good, but what happens if I'm one of those people that sometimes wonders, does God hear me or doesn't hear me? Well, look at what he says, and he said to them, which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is shut now, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus is actually telling his disciples, have you not experienced this type of reaction? Notice he says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, that is, he constantly presses on him. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, he keeps knocking and he keeps asking and he keeps knocking and he keeps asking. And he says, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Why? For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, will it, it will be opened. And then he asks a rhetorical question where you're meant to come to an obvious conclusion. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? In other words, it's incredulous that someone here who is a child would go to their father and ask for help would then just be giving more trouble. 
And he says, or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? And then notice what he says. If you then, who are evil? I mean, again, you don't go to the Bible if you want to get your self-esteem built up. Jesus is very level and very honest and very shockingly honest. He says, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, let's go back to John 17. And this, my friends, is why John 17 is so, so important. It is why I haven't only taken time with this chapter in regards to an introduction, and Lord willing, in a couple weeks, I'm going to finish up my introduction. It's in fact why I testify here. I am personally going to try and commit this chapter to my memory. It's been a long time since I deliberately memorized the chapter of the Bible, and God has moved it on my heart that I want to memorize John chapter 17. Not only would I recommend that for me and to you, so you and I can understand prayer and why we do it, what it accomplishes, and how to do it, but John 17 actually defines something that I think a lot of humanity is looking for, and the church of the West has done a lousy job of actually explaining, and that is this, what eternal life actually is. For too many of you, too many of us, too many people tuning in, too many churches in this city, this province, this country defines eternal life as living forever in heaven. And we have degraded eternal life to nothing more than heaven real estate. I've got a mansion somewhere over the hilltop. It's one of the cheapest hymns I think that could have ever been written. Or it's fire insurance. Hey, come to Jesus, say a prayer, do what I say, and boom, you know that you're not going to go to hell. And yet, Jesus Christ himself in this prayer of his defines eternal life. Look at verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life. Not that they will go to heaven. Not that they won't go to hell. This is eternal life, that they know you. Huh. What would change in our country, in our churches, if we actually started to preach that we actually believe that eternal life is to know God? And watch this, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is life eternal. This is eternal life to know God and to know Jesus. In John chapter 17, Jesus is offering a closing prayer to the Father in which he prays for three things. He asks God for three things. He asks for the glory of God to be magnified. God, I want you to be glorified and glorify your son. And then he prays in the second part of it in verses 6 to 19 for his disciples. And then in verses 20 to 26, he prays for you and I, the church. Quite literally, you know the old hymn that says, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind? I'm not sure how literal we should be doing that, but I will tell you this. I know in the Kedron Valley, when he stopped and he prayed with his disciples, that I was on his mind because he prayed for me, and you were on his mind because he prayed for you. And that's found in verses 20 to 26. And if we know Jesus, and if we have trusted in God as Father, 
then John 17 is for you and me. But if you don't know Jesus and you don't know God as Father, then this passage is actually an invitation. From chapter 13 to 16, Jesus has offered a wonderful uh, farewell address to his disciples. His hour has come, which we'll see in a few weeks, and Jesus now turns and addresses his father. He talks to him in verses 1 to 4 as the one from whom he came, announcing the completion, the obedience of his work, why he was sent in the first place, and he prays for its fulfillment, not only for the present disciples, but all of the future disciples. And you and I, as a reader, we are giving insight, we're given insight into the plan and the vision of God for his church. And this is going to give us strength. So last time I preached, I said that John 17 was a certain type of prayer. I said it's a consecration prayer. It's the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I broke it down and said Jesus prays for sanctification. Sanctification is simply a word that means our progression or our progress towards holiness and Christ-likeness. But this prayer is also a prayer of worship. He glorifies God and he wants God glorified. It's also a prayer of mission. Lord, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to be with them as they go through these things because they've got a mission now. And this mission is what we're going to focus on in two weeks. But finally, it's a prayer of confidence. Notice he says, you and I need to know just how confident Jesus is. If I'm going to be honest, I get teased a lot because I'm extroverted. I talk a lot. Love to tell a good story and a good yarn. But if I was going to be honest, often I can hide behind my extrovertedness the terrors of being afraid, feeling weak, of lacking confidence. It's amazing to me how as humans we can disguise what we're really feeling behind the mask of our personalities, whether you're extroverted or introverted, whoever you might be. But I want you to realize that we can find our strength that you and I, we can find our value as a woman, as a man, as people. You and I can find our purpose and our goals for living. You and I, this morning, on February the 12th of 2023, we can find our ability to face temptations and hardships and failures and setbacks and hurts and fears through the confident prayer of Jesus Christ in John chapter 17. And we join a legion of others. When the preacher of Hebrews said, we, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, Friends, you need to realize this is how, John 17 is how Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joseph faced life. It's how David and the prophets dealt with the ups and downs and the wars and the persecutions and the setbacks. It's how ladies like Sarah and Rachel and how Hannah in her barrenness and Abigail who was in a loveless marriage and the victim of a king. It's how Deborah, that judge, and Rahab, the harlot made princess, walked through life. 
It's how these disciples, confused and weak, it's, would do it. And how Stephen could have the countenance of an angel as he stoned to death. It's how Paul would give his life to the church. And Peter did it too. It's how Mary, the mother of Jesus, understood her son to be the Messiah. And how those sisters, Mary and Martha, could be confident that he was the resurrection and the life. And it's how you and I are going to do it today. But today, I want us to focus on the actual prayer requests that Jesus makes. And it's these prayer requests that allow me to put my sermon into a sentence. If you want something to go away with, I think Edward Klink, the commentator, puts it so well. John 17, if you want to know what I want you to take from this sermon today is this. Jesus has consecrated his disciples to God. This is what he's doing. This is why he's praying. He stops as he's on his way to the Mount of Olives where he'll go in there and he'll pray things that none of us could pray. But he stops on his way and he says, I want to consecrate my disciples to God. And here's why. So that by their participation in the oneness of the Father and the Son, they would know eternal life. They would know God and Jesus Christ. Watch this now. The church may give in glory. So why do we exist as a church? Calvary, this is why we exist. We exist to give God glory. Secondly, we exist to trust in his protection. Do you? Do I? So we exist to give God glory. We exist to trust in his protection. And we exist for his plan to share in his joy. And this is not a joy that's like Disney. It's a small world after all. This is a joy that when you get diagnosed with cancer, you know you're going to live forever with Christ. This is a joy that when a marriage fails, it's something that happened to you, but it doesn't define you. This is a joy that when you have trouble raising children or trouble in a church community or trouble with siblings or you're disavowed from your parents or you're struggling financially or you have mental illness or you're struggling to make good decisions or you're trying to overcome fears and anxiety and worry to know that God says, I will come to you and give you joy in the midst of your hurt and pain. Coming to Jesus Christ... I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. Too many Western Christians think of Jesus as country music Jesus. And you know what I'm talking about, right? The old joke, what happens if you play country music backwards? You get your dog back and your truck back and your job back and your wife back. And too many Christians or professing Christians in the modern church of Canada, the United States, treat Jesus like he's country music Jesus. I'm going to come to him now, and all of my problems are going to disappear. <laughs> I would submit to you, when you come to Jesus, you'll discover new problems like you've never encountered them before. But here's the difference. You have Jesus now. Do you know the thing that I most marvel at when I watch the world around me? When I read the headlines on our local CBC or MSN or Fox or CNN or any of these things, I look at these headlines, I watch the videos, I see the pain on so many faces. I see Hollywood celebrate evil and depravity and call it a search for enlightenment and being woke. And you know what I see? And I think... What helps them sleep and get up in the morning? 
But for all of my fears and all of my weaknesses, for all of my doubts and all of my failures, for all of the things that I live and encounter day in and day out, I know this. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You see, these disciples would do it, and this is what we are called to do. So number one, I want you to look very quickly here as we finish up this morning. Number one, I want you to know how Jesus prays for himself. There are about five or six direct requests from Jesus in this prayer. And these five or six requests are wrapped up in adoration and worship and desire between the Trinity And Jesus Christ, in verses 1 to 4, prays for himself, and he prays for two things. He prays that, one, God would be glorified in his obedience and submission to the will of the Trinity. Look at what he says. When he said, he said, lifted up his eyes, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. God, I want you to be glorified. But notice number two, Jesus asks for God to glorify him back to his original status. He says to him, look at what he says. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Since you have given him authority, in verse two, over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And then he defines eternal life. And I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Watch this, verse five. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. So in other words, Jesus is praying, Lord, I want to come back to you, Father, in your presence, watch, with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So when Jesus prays, he says, Lord, I want you to be glorified. And then he says, Lord, I want to be with you back at the stature of what we were before I became incarnate. And if you want to understand this theologically, look no further than Philippians chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 2 with me. And this is a passage many Christians quote, but I don't think we get the sheer gravity and magnitude of it. In Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes to this Philippian church that had loved him so much, he says, let not this mind, let this mind be in you, that's also to look out, having this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he gives an explanation He says in verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do? But he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what's the result of this? Because here's what Jesus just prays in verses 1 to 5 of 17. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So when Jesus prays for himself, notice what he prays. He prays that God would be glorified, and then he prays that he would be returned into the presence of God in the stature of the Trinity. Now, I'll be honest. These are things you and I could never pray for ourselves. Because we can't pray what Jesus prayed here. 
Oh, I want God to be glorified. But to quote my good brother, as we are Steve squared, when we were reading through one of the gospels and we were talking about it as staff about how Jesus says, what's the first commandment and the and second commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We were talking about it, and Steve made this little comment. He said, I have never once loved God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind for one partial second of my life. And neither have any of you, including me. But there is one who could pray that and fulfill it. And it was Jesus Christ. And this is why it's so important when you hear me, church, say often that Jesus Christ came and lived the life you and I could never live. You see, you and I could never love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because we're sinners. And even when we are forgiven, we still wrestle with the presence of sin. But the reason you and I can pray is because Jesus could pray this for himself, that he would totally, holistically, 100% without error. He's better than ivory soap. Ivory soap that gets rid of 99.99% of all germs. Jesus gets rid of them all because he's 100% pure. And so he can pray for the glory of God for himself. But notice he prays. He wants the glorification of his position as the Son of God and his authority to give eternal life. You realize the reason why Jesus says, I want to come back to you now. He says, all that you have given me, all that you have given me are mine. Because he realizes when he rises from the dead and he ascends into the throne room of heaven, he can now say, mine to everyone who believes and trusts in him. I get asked all the time, Steve, have you ever doubted your salvation? No, I haven't. I have never once doubted my salvation. I have doubted myself. I have doubted my genuineness. I have doubted my ability to live out the things that I want to do. Oh, man, I live Romans 7 just about every day of my life. The things I know I should do, I find hard to do. The things I know I shouldn't do, I find easy to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. But remember what is the first verse of Romans 8? There is therefore now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. This is the promise. This prayer claimed as his rightful place of equality with the Father because once he is placed at the right hand of God the Father, then salvation can be given freely and completely and eternally. And I can know now, Jesus Christ is my Savior. God is my Father. Hey, men and women, is he yours? Do you know him? At Easter when we play that video, that's my king. Do you know him? But notice, secondly, Jesus prays for his disciples. Look at it in verse 11 and verse 17. Jesus asks for two things. He asks that God would keep them in verse 11, and then in verse 18, he asks God to sanctify them. You'll notice he does not say, I want you to take them out of the world. I want you to give them a perfect life. I want you to help them overcome. Every man that he is praying for is going to lay down his life for Christ. All 11 of them are going to be martyred for Jesus. 
And so he says, Lord, I want you to keep them. And Lord, I want you to sanctify them. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Notice he says again, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Verse 17, sanctify them, how? By the truth. Your word is truth. So listen, if you're struggling with sin this morning and you claim to be a Christian, if you're struggling with anger, if you're struggling with bitterness, if you're struggling with loneliness, if you're unhappy in your marriage, if you're dissatisfied as a parent, if you feel like you bear the burdens and the shame and the grossness of mistakes you've made, and decisions you've made. Notice what he says. I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them. And I want you to sanctify them by the truth. Do you know how to handle all of that? Get into the word of God and get on your knees. And you will find relief from shame. You will find relief from guilt. You will find meaning in life. Michael W. Smith, right, wrote that song, Like the Rose Trampled on the Ground. And we sing that about Jesus. <laughs> it's funny because I actually think we all feel like the rose trampled on the ground. But because Jesus Christ lived the life you and I couldn't live, and he died the death you and I deserved, and he rose victoriously over the life that you and I have no power to do, that he can take any rose and make it beautiful in the eyes of God. So he doesn't say, and I want you to realize, church, and I need you to listen to me now, John 17 is the explanation of something mentioned again by Dr. Luke. Do you remember what Dr. Luke records for us in Luke chapter 22? When Peter wanted to be all that in a bag of chips, Remember when he always wanted to be preeminent and prominent. Remember what Jesus says in Luke 22? Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has asked to have you. Why? That he may sift you as wheat. But I have made supplication for you that your faith fail not. You realize right now if you're a Christian, if you're a son of God, a daughter of God, Satan makes you his special project. If you were living your life, whichever way you want to live it, Satan does not need to bother with you. But if you were going to follow God and trust him, and you were going to act like that, and you're going to show that to other people, then you're a direct threat to the lies of Satan. So he will take direct aim at you. But how comforting is it to know that Jesus prays for us. So when I'm feeling weak and lonely and when I feel discouraged, when I feel like it's not worth it, or what are we going to do now? When I put my feet in my mouth, when I'm inconsistent and hypocritical, when I say one thing and do another, when I get up here and try to act all confident, but I'm dying a little tiny boy's death inside, I have to remind myself that Satan has asked me to sift me, but Jesus prays for me, and he prays for you. And notice he prays finally for his church. That's you and I. And notice what he prays. In verse 20 to 22, he prays for the unity of the church. It's odd, isn't it? Of all the things he could pray. When Jesus is about to go face Calvary, 
He is like, Lord, I want them to be one like you and I are one. Now, that's not a lack of truth unity. That is a unity on truth. Thy word is truth. The word is truth. That's how we are kept and sanctified. Then he wants us to be unified. But notice, he says, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us. Why? So the world may believe you have sent me. May we be together. But then he says, Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am. Young people, young adults, listen to me. Do you know what the difference is between Christianity, real Christianity, and Islam, and Hinduism, and Buddhism, and all the philosophies of the world? Every other God, deity, or any other force or influence of the world will offer you all kinds of things, but never to be with that deity or leader for eternity. Only God declares, I created you, I lived and died for you, and I want you to be with me for eternity. And so why, let me ask you, why would you chase anything else when God says, I've loved you enough to give you breath. I loved you enough to live and die for you. And I loved you enough to strengthen you and pray for you and plead with God for you. And I long for you to be with me. Do you remember what he said back in 14.6? I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again to receive you unto myself. Too many Christians talk about Jesus, we sing about Jesus, we even casually pray to Jesus, but I honestly wonder if we want to be with Jesus. Listen, what Christ asks for his people, his people should ask for themselves. And as I conclude, I say this. There are two groups of people in this room and online Last week, I was at Northview Community Church, and I heard my friend and my brother Mark Birch preach on John chapter 6, the great offense of Jesus to people. And he made the reference to how in, it is a popular thing now for people to get on Facebook and TikTok and, and make, do these things and on Instagram and Snapchat and say that they once were Christians and now they have deconstructed their faith. For those of you that are older, you might remember one of the most famous ones was a guy named William William Templeton. They called him the Billy Graham of Canada. He was a very good friend with Billy Graham, but he had a crisis of faith, denounced everything, and became an atheist till he died. And a modern one is very close to me because he's a personal friend that many of you that are younger that know the evangelical world, it's a man by the name of Joshua Harris. Joshua Harris, who wrote the book, I Kiss Stating Goodbye, and wrote a theology book called Dug Down Deep. Josh and his wife, Shannon, were in my home. Debbie and I know them quite well. We've done ministry together. But he now lives in Vancouver and has denied it all and said that he deconstructed his faith. I think that's an oxymoron. You can't deconstruct your faith. All you can do is admit you never had it. But there are two groups of you in this room. There is a group of you that are considering the faith of Jesus Christ, and there's a group of you considering leaving or abandoning or finally being bold enough to admit you don't have faith. But I fear there's another group, the most dangerous group of all, 
And I feel there's too many people in our groups like this in our churches. And that's a group that simply use their definition of faith to claim their definition of Christianity. And the reason why I fear is because I wonder how many of us will hear those faithful words of Jesus when he finishes up his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, when he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did many wonderful works in your name. And he says, the Father will say, depart from me. I don't know you. So I don't know if you're here this morning and you're running from faith. I don't know if you're here this morning and you're trying to find faith. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you're hiding behind your view or definition of faith. But I know that John 17 is the greatest prayer ever prayed, uttered by the greatest prayer warrior for the greatest needy people on planet earth, you and I. And the greatest prayer ever prayed with the greatest prayer requests ever with the greatest missional prayer ever. And you might ask, why then? Or how can I pray? Well, remember this. Our prayers don't serve the same purpose of Jesus' prayers. We don't pray for merit or mediation. We pray to worship God. We pray to help, for help in our time of need. We pray to humble ourselves and admit, I can't. We pray for communion, to cry and plead. We don't pray to change God's mind. If you think you can change God's mind, then you're praying to a very weak God. We pray and we ask and we knock and we seek. See, God does not give mercy simply because we ask for it. One commentator writes, God stimulates us to pray and ask for mercy so that he will give us the mercy he has always intended to give us. So we pray mostly for the success of God's will via God's word. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, thy will be done. And this is why we do what we do. So church, are you here this morning? And do you know him? What do I pray when I don't feel like praying? We confess our sin. We use the prayers of Scripture. We recite God's attributes. We praise God for his blessings. We pray through a prayer list. We focus on the needs of others. We rejoice that Jesus is praying for me. J.C. Ryle sums up prayer like this. It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and to go to church is cheap and easy work, but to hear Christ's voice, to follow Christ's words, to believe in Christ and confess Christ requires much self-denial. And Calvary, listen, these 11 disciples didn't reject the faith and stop believing in Jesus for the rest of their life because of the actions of Judas. If the actions of others wreck your faith, then you must honestly ask yourself, was my hope in Jesus or in people? Scotty Smith says, we all hear voices, no exceptions, but we are called to train and tune our heart to hear Jesus' voice above every other voice. It's, only, it's the only voice that speaks from a heart full of grace and truth all the time. Jesus speaks the clearest and loudest through the scriptures by his spirit. 
So John 17 is the greatest prayer prayed ever up to that point. And Jesus now is at the right hand of God the Father, and he's still praying for you and I right here, right now. And he's prayed the greatest prayer request, God's glory and to be in God's presence. He prayed for us to be kept and for us to be sanctified. And he prays for us to be unified, and he prays for us to be in his presence. Now, I don't know about you, But in the face of my weakness and my doubt, I want to rest in this. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, if you're here this morning and you're tempted to walk away from Jesus, I beg of you, don't turn your back on the only one who truly loves you. And don't believe the world. And don't believe a cheap gospel. What is eternal life? To know God and his son. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, help us to interact with you and your word. Thank you for praying. Thank you that your son prayed and still does. Lord, thank you that this church's future is not based on me or even us. It's based on you and the obedience of Jesus Christ and the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that the reality of this sermon would empower men and women in this room to admit, I'm in sin. I'm in trouble. I'm afraid. I'm hurting. I'm angry, I'm confused, I don't like, I don't want. Lord, help us, because of this prayer, be honest about what we're chasing, where we're trying to find value and meaning. Help us to realize that prayer is communing with you so we can know you and God as Father. And if there are any here or online who don't know you, may they be absolutely moved and urgent to say, oh God, I need you. And Lord, may every man and woman in this room and online that says, I'm a Christian, Lord, including me, afresh and anew, cry out, oh God, I still need you. In Jesus' name, amen.